In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Uh, we'll continue our Bible study tonight, our Bible study from Psalm 16. So, let's start with introduction to this psalm. David is the author of this psalm, especially when St. Peter quoted this psalm in his first sermon in Acts chapter 2, from verse 25 to 31. He mentioned Peter as the author of this psalm. Each psalm has a title, and the title of the psalm is Mishtam of David. So, what is the meaning of the word Mishtam? Some think that this word refers to the tune in which the psalm is chanted. But according to the Septuagint translation, Mishtam means the inscription on a pillar to David. Inscription on a pillar. So, the word Mishtam signifies to engrave or to stamp as if on a pillar. Inscription on a pillar, as if you engrave on a pillar. Uh, and why people actually engrave on a paper on, on a pillar to keep it for so many years to keep it in remembrance others think that the word mishtam is derivative of a word signifying to hide or to signify a secret or a mystery to refer to the depth of the spiritual meaning of this psalm. So this psalm has deep spiritual meaning. Some think that the word here, not mishtam, is mishab. And this word is found in Isaiah 38, verse 9, and also in other passages in the scripture. And mishab means written. So, the word Mishap means written by David. Others said Mishtam means pure or stamped gold. So this title was given as a reflection of its value, as if they are saying this is a golden sun, expression of something rare and precious or a son worthy to be written with letters of gold. So, regardless, the word mishtam means what? All these different meanings, all these different meanings, there is one factor in all of them, that this is a very precious son, because it speaks so plainly of Christ and his resurrection. And when Peter, in his first sermon, want to say that the Old Testament prophesied about the resurrection of Christ, he quotes Psalm 16. So, uh, 
when we read the words of the of the son, we can apply it to David. But as we're going to explain, there is the last verses from the son cannot be applied to David. It's only can be applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. This psalm begins with such expression of devotion that can be applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the psalm concludes with such confidence of a resurrection. This cannot be applied to David. This resurrection applied only to Christ cannot be understood of David. As both Peter and Paul, when they quoted this psalm, Peter in Acts 2.24 and Paul in Acts 13.36 Both of them said these words cannot be applied to David because David died and was buried and saw corruption. So in this psalm when David in a prophetic way say you did not allow my body to see corruption this is not about David. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. So David speaks of himself here as a symbol, as a type of Christ. So he speaks the language of Christ himself, to whom actually all the rest of the psalm is definitely and clearly applied. So from verse 1 to the end of the psalm, this actually can be clearly applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. This psalm is 11 verses, can divide it into four sections. First verse, David's introductory prayer of faith. From 2 to 5, David's confidence in God alone. 6 and 7, David's contentment of his faith in the present. 8 to 11, David's joyful confidence of his faith for the future. This psalm is one of the psalms that we pray in the first hour of Agbeya. So we pray this psalm in the first hour of Agbeya. Verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. These words are spoken by one in trouble and distress or in danger, either from his enemies or any other way. That's why he said, Preserve me, O Lord. David was frequently in such circumstances. King Saul chased him all his life. After this, his son Absalom. So, this this verse probably is spoken by David in his own person. But as I said, every verse can be applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, verse 1 also can be applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord offered many prayer and supplication upon entering on his great atoning work like the prayer in Gethsemane, in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Also, these words are very suitable when we as believers go through difficult time. When we feel need to pray for support under troubles or distresses, we say, preserve me, O Lord. We pray to be protected against our spiritual enemies, Satan, and preserved and kept from the sins to which we are exposed. So when we say, preserve me, O Lord, preserve me and keep me from the sins from the devil. But other scholars said, preserve me is not a tone of despair or complaint. Rather, it is a settled joy. So, the psalmist here, it doesn't appear that he is threatened by any danger. But simply, he is calling on God to continue his protecting care. You cared about me, you preserved me. Now, I am asking you to continue to preserve me. Because only in God's keeping can soul and body be safe. Then David actually gave a justification for that prayer. What is the justification? He told him, preserve me, O Lord, because I have put my trust in you. David has sought and taken refuge in God. David had told the Lord that God is his only hope. So, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. Verse 2. O my soul, you have said to the Lord. Now David is speaking to himself. And he said, O my soul, you have said to the Lord, You are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. So when he said, For in you I put my trust, he explains how. Because he said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I'm not going to worship anybody, any other God. There is no other God but you. And my goodness, I will have no goodness at all. There is no goodness apart from you. He had no good beside the Lord. In sense that he knew that he has no goodness of his own uh, apart from God. So any goodness in me is coming from you. Whatever virtue or goodness may be in him or done by him, it doesn't add anything to God's value or worth. For he does not need him nor his service. When we do something good, it doesn't add anything to God. In the Septuagint translation, which actually we used in the Agbaya, you will call the Rabb, Anta Rabbi, Wala Tahtag ila Salahi. You don't need my goodness. So, you don't need my goodness because my goodness 
will add nothing to you. Whatever I do adds nothing. You don't need me. We say in St. Gregory liturgy, you are not in need of my worship, but I am in need of your lordship. You are not in need of my worship, but I am in need of your lordship. Uh, why our goodness is nothing away from God? Because our goodness itself is a gift from God. That's why apart from Him, there is no goodness. You cannot have any virtue without God. Verse 3. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So, his delight in the saints, in the godly people, and he called them, they are the excellent ones. So, some take these to be the words of David speaking to the church who had owned the Lord to be her Lord. So, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord, here is the church, the bride of Christ, saying to Christ, saying to God, you are my Lord. And that's why I have delight only in the saints. I have delight only in godly people. St. John Chrysostom says, the psalmist moreover says, my goodness is nothing apart from you. Therefore, you tell me, of what is God use if I am righteous and just? Does this add anything to God? Does this benefit God anything if I am righteous and just? How will he be harmed if I am wicked? The weakness of the people cannot harm God. Why, St. John Chrysostom says, isn't it his nature incorruptible? Isn't it his nature unharmed and above any kind of pain? The slaves, however rich they may be, have nothing of their own. What they have only belongs to their masters. So in verse 2, David said he has no hope of anything except in God. None beyond him, none beside him. In verse 3 he states, a further proof of his attachment to God that he regarded with deep affection the sins of God, the godly people, and he considered them the excellent. So he found his delight, his happiness, not in the company of the wicked, but in the friendship of the saints whom he called the excellent of the earth. Thus he was deliberate and determined of his true attachment to God and to his people. Thus he had what must ever be essentially the evidence of true virtue. If we are truly righteous, if we are truly godly, then we have 
we should have a feeling that God is all in all to me. And also a real love for those who are his. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. A feeling that there is nothing beyond the God or without God that can meet the wants of the soul. As St. Augustine said, you created us yourself and our souls will continue to be restless until we find our rest in you. And also a sincere affection for all who are his friends, his friends, friends of God on earth, children of God on earth. If God be ours, then we must, for his sake, extend our goodness to those who are hands, to the saints who are on the earth. And what is done to them, he is pleased to consider it as done to himself. The Lord said, whatever you do to my little brethren, as if you have done it to me. When you feed one of these brethren, as if you fed me. In reality, we the believers should be the saints on the earth. In order to be saints in heaven, we need to start here on earth to be the saints on earth. In every divine, divine liturgy, Abuna says at the end, the whole is for the holy, or the whole is for the saints. So he's reminding us before taking communion, we need to be saints to approach the holies. And all those who have taken the Lord for their God, delight in his saints. If you are a godly person, you will be delighted with godly people, not with the wicked people. And you will consider them as the excellent ones because they bear his image, bear the image of God. This verse also is applicable to Christ. I told you every single verse is applicable to Christ. Because the salvation he wrote out for us was no gain to God. The salvation that Jesus Christ fulfilled did not benefit God the Father anything. For our ruin, for our ruin, would have been no loss to him. Our ruin, even all of us, if we perish, there is no loss to God. But the goodness and benefit of it, the goodness of this redemption, extended to us men. Then why he saved us? Because he delighted in us. Because he loved us. He loved us. That is why he saved us. Uh, verse 4 their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another god their drink offerings of blood I will not offer nor take up their names on my lips So after David showed his great respect and affection to the saints, to the servants of the true God, now David declares his outrage for those who worship the idols. He understood that those who served other gods 
may found sorrows in their life. And this verse, verse 4, is the only note of sadness in the entire psalm. This psalm is full of joy. But he inserted this verse in order to make contrast to the joyful expression in verse uh, 3 before and in verse 5 after with the condition of people who are worshipping other idols in verse 4. So as if he is saying, if men would not obey God, but would hasten after another God, then they must not expect prosperity or joy of any kind. As we read in Proverbs 1.27, their sorrows shall be multiplied, distress and anguish will come upon them. But maybe somebody would tell me, but even the righteous, they have many sorrows. This is true. And David himself, although he lived for God, but his life was not an easy one. He experienced many hardships, but he remained faithful to God. David said, those who lived for another God, they have many sorrows, and their life is difficult. That's why when the Lord asked Peter and the twelve disciples, do you want also to go? Peter told him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Our delight in you. We know if we go to other gods, we'll have many sorrows. So what is the difference between hardships for the ungodly and hardships for the righteous. Hardships are allowed to the wicked ones for they might search for repentance and return to God. Hardships are allowed to the righteous in order to purify them. So for the children of God, it's a mean of purification. For the ungodly people, it's a mean of discipline that they might repent and return back. Then what does this mean, their drink offering of blood I will not offer? You know, uh, when they used to offer a sacrifice, the blood of animals slain in sacrifice, this blood was offered to their gods, and it's called drink offering of blood. So David here continues to vow that he will never offer the blood drink, the drink offerings to these other gods, or even mention their names, or even mention their names. Their drink offering of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. Because he said to the Lord, you are my Lord. So he will not mention even the names of the false gods. Also, this verse can be applied to the Lord Jesus Christ and how the nature of his sacrifice is different because he did not offer the blood of animals but he offered his own blood 
as we read in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. Showing also the multiplied sorrow of the unbelieving Jews who hastened after another king, Caesar, and are still hastening after another Messiah whom they in vain look for. So these sorrows followed the Jews because they preferred Caesar over Christ uh, during the time of the trial, and until now they are looking for another Messiah, the false one, and still looking for another Messiah. Verse 5, O Lord, you are my portion of my inheritance. You are the portion of my inheritance. And my cup, you maintain my lot. You maintain my lot. When actually children of Israel entered the promised land, God said to Aaron and to all the tribe of Levi, especially the priests, he told them, you will not have a land inheritance in Canaan. But he said to Aaron, I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel. How you look for dust to be your inheritance when I am your portion and your inheritance. David, although he is not from the tribe of priesthood, but David claims the same privilege. You are my portion, you are my inheritance. Most men place their delight in the enjoyment of the world, in their positions. If you inherited a big land, a lot of money, you'll be delighted in this. But there is a better inheritance when the Lord is your inheritance and your portion. For David, God is his portion. He needs no other inheritance, regardless of how poor his condition in this world. Heaven is an inheritance. And God himself is the inheritance of the saints in heaven. Because our everlasting happiness is to enjoy God. What about my cup? He said, you are my portion of my inheritance and my cup. My cup has the same meaning, means my inheritance. Means the portion which is put in my cup, as if if they are sharing drink, so you are my portion that is put in my cup. But the cup actually often denotes man's condition. In Gethsemane, when the Lord said, take this cup away from me, it refers to a condition, suffering. Or when the Lord said to the two sons of Zebedee, can you drink the cup that I will drink? Here referring to the, the suffering 
the condition of suffering that he will go through. But my cup also refers to the cup that refresh and sustain the person. So when he told him, you are my cup, you are my refreshment, you are the one who sustains me, I find my comfort, my refreshment, my happiness in you alone. David was confident that God would maintain what he had first given to him. That's why he told him, you maintain my lot. The hope, the happiness, the peace, the joy that you give me, I, I am confident that you maintain it, maintain it for me. So here, the picture that God uh, maintaining David's portion, David's inheritance. God is the one who is maintaining David's inheritance. In other words, as if he is saying, nothing shall grab me out of God's hand, not separate me from his love, because you are my inheritance, and I trust that nothing will separate me from your love. And that's true because the saints are kept by the power of God. As the Lord said, those who are in my hand, the evil one cannot touch them. Also, verse 5 can be applied to the Lord Jesus Christ, who desired to do the will of God. You are my portion, you are my inheritance. Jesus took the cup of sorrow and suffering, which being measured out, filled up, and put in his hand by the Father. He freely took it, and he drank it. It is God the Father who has given Jesus this lot to redeem us, to redeem mankind, and to have them as his inheritance. From God the Father, Jesus has received the cup of suffering, which Jesus drank for our sake. Verse 6, The lions have fallen to me, in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. In verse 5, he said, you are the portion of my inheritance. How they used to divide the land. They used lion. So the lion actually indicates this is my land and this is your land. So he said, the lions that measured my portion have fallen to me in pleasant places. I have the best in place because God is my portion. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I am not regretting. I am very happy. I am very pleased with my inheritance. So he said, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places because God holds his lot. The lions means the measuring ropes or strings by which the portion of land were measured. So here the hint is the same like the preceding verse. Lying, lines signifying the lot or piece of land, which it was the custom to divide and measure by lines. And this had fallen to him in pleasant places. 
He was pleasant, pleasantly content with God and found great delight in him to be his portion. David spoke with satisfaction of the Lord as something that someone had given him. I am satisfied. As also in Psalm 73 he said, With you I need nothing from the earth. With you I desire nothing on earth. In pleasant places, uh, temporal here, Jerusalem and its surrounding area, sweet land flowing with milk and honey, and blessed by the presence and the knowledge of the true God, where the temple was. But also pleasant places is the heavenly Jerusalem. So David has got a worthy a worthy portion, a godly, a goodly a heritage. What can anyone have better than having God? Or what can anyone desire more than having God? Verse 7 I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. So when he chose God to be his portion, God gave him counsel. God directed him in every step in his life. So now he is grateful to God who gave him counsel and directed him. That's why he said, I will bless the Lord. The false God of the nation could never give counsel the way the Lord gave it to David. God has become David's counselor. Also my heart instructed me because David's heart was instructed first by God and by the word of God. Therefore, his heart could also instruct him in the ways of God. When you keep the word of God in your heart, then your heart will instruct you and will lead you. His heart directs him what course he should take, how to please and to serve God, and to put his whole trust and confidence in God. So David has indeed taken God for his portion and preferred spiritual and eternal blessing before that uh, uh, temporal, earthly. He thankfully acknowledged the power and goodness of divine grace directing and enabling him to make that choice. Therefore, he is praising God, I will bless the Lord. The Septuagint and the Arabic is a little bit different. وبارك الرب لازم صحاني وأيضا بالليل تنزرني كليتاي. In English, there is nothing by, by night my rains uh, warn me. But since God is my counselor, then my heart will instruct me. And by night, when I examine myself, my reins, you know, the, the, the function of the kidney is to cleanse the toxin from the body. That's the function of the kidney. So at night, 
he used kidney as a symbol how by self-examination and repenting as if he is clearing himself from the toxins of sins. Also, verse 7 can be applied to Christ, who made the Lord his portion and was pleased with that portion. He made his father's glory his highest end, to do the will of the father, and he sought the father counsel. He depended upon the father to maintain his lot and to carry him through the cross in the time of his passion, his determinations concerning redemption of man support him. As we read in Hebrew 12 verse 2, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. So he put the joy of our salvation to, and this joy is the pleasure of the Father. So this helped him, supported him to endure the crucifixion. Also we may apply the same verse, verse 7, to us uh, renewing our choice of God to be our portion with a holy contentment and satisfaction. Verse 8 I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. From this verse, verse 8, to the last verse, verse 11, so these four verses, are quoted by St. Peter in his first sermon. You can read it in Acts chapter 2, verse 25. St. Peter tells us expressly that David in them speak concerning Christ, particularly his death and his resurrection. So David in these four verses, he was not speaking about himself, but in a prophetic way, as Peter explained, he was speaking about Christ. So they must certainly be applied to Christ. In all that our Lord did, or sinned, or suffered, he kept the glory of the Father and the accomplishment of his purpose constantly before his eyes. I have set the Lord always before me. Jesus tells us that he did not come down from heaven to do his own will, but the will of the Father who had sent him. If we apply this verse to David, this means he decided to put God first in his life. He determined that God would always be his focus and his perspective. I have put God on my right hand. This is spoken by Christ as man. I have said the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. My right hand also means 
support, strength, power. So put him at my right hand to support me, to strengthen me. Because of this, I shall not be moved. Jesus has the Father constant presence, approval, support. That's what he means at my right hand. He was always in the intimate presence of his Father. And the outcome, I shall not be moved. Nothing can change Jesus' mind from his purpose. I have come to redeem the world. Nothing can prevent him from fulfilling the divine counsel in redeeming and saving all the men. He persevered in it till he was able to say on the cross, it is finished. I, the work, he said in John 17, the word you have given me to do, I have accomplished. I have accomplished. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. This was the plain result of David's decision to put God first. If you put God first, you will not be moved. Then he continued to describe the benefits of his decision to set the Lord always, always before him. And by the way, this means the fear of God. To walk in the fear of God means to set the Lord always before you. Verse 9. Because I have set the Lord always before me, therefore, the outcome, the result, my heart is glad. My glory rejoices. In the Septuagint, my tongue rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. My flesh also will rest in hope. So, this decision brought gladness and glory to David's life. God was at his right hand for his support and assistance. And the word gladness denotes inward joy and the fullness of it because of the presence of the Lord with him. There was a security in David's life that would not have otherwise existed. In spite of all the hardships around me, but there is security in my heart. My heart is glad. So this can be applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, when he decided to save us, he just did not make this decision just out of obedience to the Father, but also with joy, with unspeakable pleasure and satisfaction. He said in John 18, verse 11, Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? No, I will do it joyfully. And with content. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, as we read in Hebrews 12, verse 2. My heart is glad and my glory rejoices. As I told you, the Septuagint translated my tongue. And also, when you read in the book of Acts, this translation is followed by Peter in his quotation in Acts chapter 2. Because 
any quotes in the New Testament from the Old Testament is taken from the Septuagint, not from the Hebrew. That's why the Septuagint is the authentic and the official uh, version of the scripture in the Orthodox Church for the Old Testament. My heart is glad, my glory rejoices, my flesh also will rest in hope. So, he should be brought from under the power of death. That what means my flesh rest in hope. Which hope? That I will be brought from the power of death by a glorious resurrection. Yes, I will die. I will be in the tomb for three days. But my flesh rest in hope. Hope of resurrection. Glorious resurrection. He rested in hope and that his rest glorious as we read in Isaiah 11:10, He knew he should be justified by his resurrection and immediately be glorified. There was happiness and a glory. David knew by this life commitment that he would not have known otherwise. So David also says, when I rest, I die in hope, the hope of the resurrection in the second coming of Christ and that we will go to heaven for our eternal inheritance. The joy he spoke in verse 9 is based on the confidence in verse 8, I shall not be moved. I shall not be moved from my inheritance. That's why even when I die, I will rest in hope. So these two verses, verse 8 and 9, should make us feel secure to know is God is near us, God is with me. Verse 8 and 9 give us hope. I have said the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. We can be glad and can rest securely at night. No matter what's going around us, God is with us. Verse 10. For you will not leave my soul in shore, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So this verse is clearly about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The term Holy One refers to Jesus only. And you can find in, in the four Gospels and also in the book of Acts many references to Jesus as the Holy One. Holy One is applied to him because he is the only all holy, eminently holy. So the passage here expressly applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I told you, uh, Peter in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, he referred this verse to the resurrection of Christ. So there can be no doubt that it was intended by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to designate the Lord in this place. Peter says that David was a prophet and he knew that God had promised to seat one of his descendants on his throne forever. 
But who can be on the throne forever? All the descendants of David died. So this refers only to Christ. Not earthly throne, but heavenly throne. So according to Peter in Acts chapter 2, David was actually looking ahead and speaking of Christ's resurrection. And St. Paul said the same thing in Acts 13, verse 34. Paul is arguing in Acts 13 that Jesus was raised from the dead and that the scripture had predicted that would happen, his resurrection. First, he took passage from Isaiah 55. And Paul interpreted as God promising to give to Christ the promises that were made to David. So the promises that were given to David were given to Christ. Because these promises only understood in spiritual way, not earthly way. So Christ inherited all the promises that were given originally to David. Then after this, Paul said, one of these promises, you find it in Psalm 16, the second line of verse 10, which is the Holy One, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So this promise was given to Christ, that God would not allow his Holy One to undergo to undergo decay. Paul says directly that indeed David did undergo decay after he died. So this cannot be applied to David. But St. Paul says, the one whom God raised up Jesus, he did not undergo decay. So the Apostle Paul referred to Psalm 16.10 as a messianic prophecy of Jesus Christ's resurrection can read it in Acts 13, verse 35. So the last three verses in Psalm 16, verse 9, 10, and 11, apply directly to Christ, and that they could not possibly apply to David in any immediate sense, because his body did experience decay, but Christ's body did not experience decay. All of us, all human beings, see corruption because they are born in sin and who are liable to the curse. But the human body of Christ, being without sin, saw no corruption. At the same time, the psalm speaks about reassurance in death. David described a further benefit of his life decision to set the Lord always before him. You can read this in the last verse which is verse 11. You shall show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So it was the confidence of God's care and blessing in the life beyond. David had had the settled hope total confidence that God would not leave his soul in the grave, but that his life would continue in the presence of God. This is a wonderful statement of trust in the resurrection eternal life. 
His body undergo decay, but his soul went to the paradise on Good Friday with the crucifixion. And in the second coming of Christ, his body will be raised, not corruptible. But as St. Paul said, sown in corruption, but raised in glory. And David has this confidence that in the eternal life, he will be risen and enjoy the eternal life in the presence of God. Eternity with God is one great reason to be satisfied with God. Even when life here on earth is difficult and hard, it is temporary. But if we compare our life here on earth with the eternal life, this actually gives us joy and satisfaction. We are going to be with him forever. Where eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither have come upon the heart of man, those things which God has prepared for his people. So David is just generally speaking of his confidence that God would raise him from the dead someday to be with the Lord forever. And this would be the ultimate reason why David is satisfied with God. All must die, but we all will rise. And though in their case, they shall see corruption like David all of us when we die our body will see corruption but when we rise to the everlasting life we will be risen in glory why we will be risen in glory because the resurrection of Christ is the guarantee that all our resurrection will be in glory Christ is the first fruit of them that slept as St. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 Why St. Paul said that Christ is the first fruit? Although some people died and risen before Christ, like in the Old Testament, we have the son uh, that uh, Elijah raised and the two people that Elisha raised. So there are three people in the Old Testament. And Jesus rose three. So at least there are, we know, about six persons were risen for Christ. But all of them, after they rose, they died again. But Christ rose, and he did not die again. They rose with corruptible body. That's why they died again. But Jesus rose with incorruptible body, with a glorified body. So Jesus rose from the dead and is alive forevermore. The resurrection of the Lord from the dead was the first entrance out of the grave to eternal life. He is the only one rose from death and ascended to heaven. So in summary, if one to apply these verses to David, it implies that he had a firm belief in the resurrection of the dead in the end of the world and confident hope of happiness thereafter. But as applicable to Christ, it denotes that Christ would be raised up and exalted to exalted honor in heaven. If we apply this verse to us, the believers, 
it express our firm and assured faith that eternal happiness and exalted honor awaits us in the future world. Happiness will be eternal. It is not a temporary enjoyment such as we have on earth, which we feel is soon to terminate. But the happiness, it's eternal. This joy can have no end. So here, in respect to any joy which we enjoy, we cannot but feel that it is soon to cease. Any happiness, any joy here on earth, you will have enjoyment for some time and it will end. But the eternal happiness has no end. Then he said, you will show me the path of life. Path of life, David seemed to understand that the benefits of this life commitment to God were received in both this life and life beyond. In the life beyond, we will receive eternal happiness and eternal glory. But also in life here, God will show me the path of life. Path of life is something enjoyed by the believer both now and in eternity. Because here on earth, regardless of the hardships, we will have joy. As the Lord told us, I will see you and you will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from from you. God gave us eternal life to enjoy as the present gift extended to eternity. So he gave us the pledge of eternal life, pledge of joy here on earth, but this joy will be extended and magnified in eternal life. You shall show me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. When I am with you, that's the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, the followers of the Lord Jesus will be at the right hand of God. The right hand, even on earth, means place of esteem, place of honor, place of dignity, place of respect. And here it refers to the place which the saints will occupy in heaven, place of honor and glory. God's people will dwell at his right hand. When we go back to the first verse, Preserve me, O Lord, for in you I have put my trust. We remember that this life of gladness and rejoicing and fullness of joy is not a problem-free life. So we may face hardships, but in the midst of all these hardships, we are joyful. It's a life that may be challenging and face attack on many levels, yet in that a life commitment to God has been made and is enjoyed, and it is secure, happy, blessed life. When you commit your life to God, you will have joy, security, happiness, and blessing. This actually concludes Psalm 16 from the book of David. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.